Thank you, Scott and Zach, and I want to add my welcome to all of you that are gathered together on the second floor here with me, to those of you that are on the third floor, oddly directly above my head, those of you who are on the first floor currently flinging goldfish and Kool-Aid, blessings be upon you, and all of those of you that are watching remotely from wherever you might be, we are glad that you are here. As Mike has already said, we don't think it is an accident that you are here, particularly in this season. We're not officially, technically, to the spring season, but it's very much springtime. I don't know if you've had the opportunity now, net of the, what are we calling it now, the snowpocalypse or snowmageddon, or you throw in a pandemic in that, and now you've got snowvid 19 I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But there is beginning to be this, uh, this budding new birth. There is this new growth. There is life that is coming through death interestingly. And so spring is always a fascinating time for me, for many people. We get to see the, the bright, brilliant pastel colors, the smells, the aromas, of the, and the fragrances of all these flowers. And I don't think it's any accident whatsoever that we find ourselves where we do, when we do, as Scott's already mentioned, in the book of Ephesians and chapter 4. Now, as I walked around just in the world over the weekend and experiencing the beautiful weather and the, the sights and the, the smells and the sounds sort of prepared me for, I think, prayerful uh, walking through this passage, which is going to be our big idea for the morning and I think for this entire text. Our big idea, net of the context in which we find ourselves, goes very simply like this, walk in newness of life. Last week, at the first half of our chapter, chapter 4, we talked about the importance of community, that community is not just a bunch of people getting together to play Twister, although that's rad. No, no, community is a shared love of a third party. That's how we come together as Christians, is that we share a love for Christ. And so because of that, we want to be focused not on ourselves of you do you, but it's y'all do us. That's the idea. Therefore, Paul's now going to say in chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Now, we're going to walk very briefly through the entirety of chapter 4, the second half that is, and uh, we'll try to unpack it and see how we can apply it. I'm just going to read aloud all at once the first paragraph of this section, and then we'll walk all through it together. So chapter 4 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes this. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and it's corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is God's word. I want to walk back through this super efficiently to the extent that I can. And I think it might be one of the most practical, poignant, personal, and pertinent passages you will ever encounter. So beginning back again in verse 17, in view of all the doctrine that Paul has already dropped, he's now going to give us some doing. 
which we say this all the time, I want to say it again, the indicative is always followed by the imperative. All these chapters of doctrine, who God is, what he's done, what he's like, who he has declared us to be, and springing out of that now comes how we are to actually walk around, our our lifestyle, our manner of existing in the world. Now, transitional from all of that, I say this, and I testify in the Lord. This is as strong, this is, uh, I witness to the Lord. This is like Paul raising his right hand saying, I swear to the Lord that this is how serious this is. This is how central this is, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, you have to ask the question, why does Paul tell them to no longer walk as the Gentiles do? Short answer, because they were walking as the Gentiles did. You don't tell your kid to stop running in the house when they're asleep in their beds. You tell them feverishly, stop running in the house, especially with scissors and open flames. That's when you try to stop them. Paul says, stop doing that because there is a default proclivity and a tendency to walk according to the world. Now, that's really important for us to all understand about ourselves, about our neighbors, about our co-members in the church. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The translation is Gentiles, which technically is correct. The, the word here is ethne, where we get our word for ethnicities. It's all the nations of the world who historically do not have Yahweh as their God. They, they don't have the benefit of having the Mosaic law presented to them as this is the roadmap of righteousness. All other nations don't have that. They have a, a common sense assumption of how life works. Paul says, I don't want you to operate according to that roadmap. That roadmap is wide, and it leads to destruction. I wish Jesus would have said something like that. That would have been really clever. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Oh, I could spend months on that one clause. This word futility has the idea of pointlessness, purposelessness. It's just got no direction. It's got nothing. It's just the mind here is is the word noeo. It's your mindset, heart set, soul set. It's listless, directionless. It is purposeless, pointless. That's the default state that every human being comes into the world. Now, we have to know this about one another. That's the default state that at conception, all of us come into the world with a purposelessness and a pointlessness, although there's all sorts of barrage and bombardment trying to tell us this is how we ought to live. This is the life that works. Turns out it isn't. Verse 18, they, this is the nations, all the peoples of the world are darkened in their understanding. They're looking through a smudgy glass. Now, that's not a popular thing to say. I get that. But the entire population of humanity, 7.5 billion strong, by default, is looking through a mud-splattered windshield. And then we wonder why there's wrecks. Because nobody sees clearly. We, We think that we do, but we don't. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated, separate, helplessly, hopelessly, haplessly, separated from the life of God which is an unpopular message because every world religion save one teaches that you can try harder, be better, and you will approach God. The better you are, the more that you do, the more focused and intent that you are, the closer you'll be to God. That sounds really good. It sounds like common sense, except that it's distinctly unbiblical. 
By nature, Paul says, we are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that we don't know. We don't come into this world with the knowledge that is necessary to draw near to God. If it feels like I'm repeating myself and being redundant, it's just because I'm saying the same thing over again. We don't come into the world with the knowledge of how to draw near to God. It doesn't work that way. Due to their hardness of heart, there is a calcification, a sclerosis, a hardening of our inner being that that is just our default state. If I'm kind of bringing you down, I mean to because there's going to be some really good news here in a bit. Verse 19, there's this sort of downward spiral. They have become callous. This word callous literally means unable to feel pain or shame. It says in the book of Exodus and later in the prophets, do they not even remember how to blush? I know people like this. Sometimes he occupies my bathroom mirror. I've been that guy. They have become callous and have given themselves up. They continue to throw themselves at this Errant ideology. They give themselves over again and again to sensuality, where the feelings are no longer servants, they are masters. That's what sensuality is. You've been there? I've been there. I call that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Never Thursday, but on Friday. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To sensuality. Greedy. What is greed? Greed says, whatever that thing is, I can't get enough of it. It never fully satisfies me. And so I have to keep going back to that source and manipulating it and perverting it and twisting it because I just can't get enough. I need more of it to fill me. And I'm never filled. And so I'm restless. And I'm wrestling with my own soul. That's greed. To practice every kind of impurity. Impurity always has the idea of sexual immorality. Seizing unto myself joy that is not joy and for which I was not intended. That's impurity. That is sexual immorality. But, huge contrast, verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ. Please understand this is the strongest possible verb. Learned Christ. It does not come to us by default. And you don't discover it by yourself. There is an us-ness to this verb. It must be taught to you by somebody else who is walking in newness of life. To tell you the foundational fundamentals that you don't just figure out by common sense. There is a God. There is a spirit realm. He is a great, good, loving God, and he's glorious, but he's also just, and he cannot leave sin unpunished. He cannot let bygones be bygones, or that would be ungodding God. See, someone who's ahead of you in this walking in newness of life has to explain this to you, that judgment must fall upon rebellion and sin, and that all of us come into this world right out of the box, right out of the wrapper, rebellious against God. And he has to do something about it. So you have to be taught this. It doesn't come to you naturally. Someone has to say, don't you understand? This is your direction. You are pointless and purposeless, but, but somebody loves you. Here's how much he loves you. This God that is judge, who is just, also becomes the victim of that justice and that wrath so that you will never have to, so that you can actually, one who is alienated and far from God, so that you can be brought near, so that you can have the life that is in God and actually ever increasingly approach his presence and see his face for all eternity. That is not default knowledge that has to be taught you. It's not what you were taught. And then Paul's going to go into some more detail about what they were taught. Please notice, we still don't have an imperative here 
There's not yet been a command. I know some of you are going, uh-huh, just tell me what to do, please. I just, I've got my list. I need to make it longer, please. We'll get there. Relax, relax. That's not how you were taught or the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. He is the subject of our teaching, and he is the sphere of our teaching. I can't geek out on that enough. He is the focus of all of our learnings and our discipleship, and he is the sphere. It all happens in him. You can't learn him unless you are in him. Unless you are found to be in Christ, then you get a new mind. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in, is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. It wants to harm you. It is not seeking your good nor your best interests. It's out to get you. That's instructive. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, we've got to do a little bit of work here because this two-verse passage has confounded and confused people for centuries. What does this mean to put off and to put on? Well, first of all, what do we mean nature and old self? It's not the same thing. I've heard it with all good intention, mistaught, misapplied to think you have two natures. No, you don't. You have one nature because you are a person. You have a new nature. But this little word new is what trips all of us up because in English, we just have one word for new, and that's unfortunate. There's two kinds of new in Greek. One is a completely transformed, renovated thing. That's a new thing. Then there's a completely different thing. When you go down to the truck store and get yourself a new truck, that's a new, different thing, hypothetically. That's a new and different thing, or there's a totally renovated, transformed thing. That's the idea that Paul gives us here. You don't have a different nature. It's your dead nature that the Spirit of God breathes into, and it is a redemptive recreation. You have a new, not a different one, a totally transformed and renovated nature. It was dead, now it's alive. But you still have this old self that's hanging around. Have you noticed? If, if, if not, look around. Have you noticed that your physical self hasn't been redeemed yet? You should see what I see. It hasn't. And I know what you see. This has certainly not been redeemed yet. And it would take something like God to do this job. I get that. Your physical self, which is your manner of life, the motivation that drives your action, that's your old self. And it's not gone yet. You have a new nature. It's been transformed, redemptively recreated. But that old energy source, that motivation for your meandering through your world still exists. Paul's kind of saying, imagine this. Oh, I don't know, you know, like, uh, like springtime. You walk by a tree and it's got all these wonderful green buds that are beginning to pop and there's some leaves. There might even be some flowers. And you walk up and you go, woo, <laughs> brown, dead, discarded leaves. And you pick them up and you try to attach them with a stapler to the new growth. That would be silly. You wouldn't do that, would you? That's what we do when we sin. See, the Holy Spirit of God is producing fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. He's doing a thing in and through and with our new nature, and we have a tendency to go, <laughs> leaves. 
And I like those leaves. But he's pushing out that old dead stuff. The outer is wasting away, but the inner is being renewed. We talked about that in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. The old outer is falling apart. You can say amen. I see you. But the inner is being renewed. There's new growth. Why would you attach dead, dirty, brown leaves to the new, brilliant spring growth? That's what Paul's talking about here. Let the old brown leaves go. We're going to figure out how to do that here in just a moment. That's through verse 24. Now verse 25. Therefore, and so, in view of all that, having put away falsehood. That's interesting. That means it exists by default in all of us. We operate on autopilot falsely. Oh, we'd like to think that we're much more noble than that. But just run late to a meeting. And see how many excuses immediately run through your mind. Oh, the traffic lights. Oh, this, the sun was in my eyes. El Nino, the dog ate my homework. Uh, Oprah, whatever. You'll come up with a million things to rationalize and self-justify because we operate by default on falsehood. And you can just see yourself picking up leaves and stapling them on to the green every time we do it. Having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. How should the people of God now then live? Speak the truth. What does that mean? It means conforming your words to reality. Sounds obvious, doesn't it? It's remarkable how unusual that can be. Conforming your words to reality. Not what you would like for it to be. Not what you think it should be. Not what it used to be. You speak that which actually is. It's something like, oh, I don't know, when the Messiah said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Full stop. Conform your words to reality. Speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Now, I got to do a little bit more wordy nerdy here. This is about as close as we're ever going to get in our New Testament to church membership. We're not really ever called to that per se, but Paul will over and over again use the metaphor, the image of a body. And all these body parts have different functions and forms, and they're supposed to get along. Now, we all kind of know that, but there is this thing in the real world called hand-eye coordination, And really gifted athletes are those rare people who when they envision it with their mind, with their eye, their hand will actually do it. I watch these guys play um, instruments up on the third floor, and I'm amazed at how their eye and their ear can envision it, and then their hands just do it. I watch people like professional golfers who know what they want the ball to do, and then it just does it. They have hand-eye coordination. See, ordinance comes from a Latin word that means law or command. This is why in the church we have two ordinances of Jesus. We do baptism and communion. And what Paul's calling us to is to have co-ordination that we both, all of us, follow the same command. We're all on the same page. All of the stuff that is between all the parts, that's the membership, do you see? And when we have hand-eye coordination, we have foot-head coordination, marvelous things happen. And when we don't have hand-eye coordination, well, then it looks like me playing golf, like an octopus falling out of a tree. It's so very awkward. So you just, you can't look away, but uh, we are called as members of the body to have hand-eye coordination. It's that big of a deal. And when it happens, it's marvelous. And people go, look at all those different disparate parts working together to accomplish something incredible. That's amazing. Yes, 
This is what we want to be about as a church. That's why we do membership. By the way, Mike already mentioned this. We're going to have Discover Bethel teaching you how to take the next step in membership on Thursday, April 8th. Shameless plug. Moving on. Now we're going to get super particular. We are members of one another. Then he says very precisely, I get the idea that there's a, an issue going on here in Ephesus. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now we need to camp here for just a moment again. It's interesting that here's the first imperative we really get. Be angry. To which most of us will go, I'm in. Just point me in the right direction. No, no, no. Paul says be angry. In other words, Anger by itself is not evil. It's not wrong. Paul commands it. We know that Jesus got angry. So what exactly is anger? I love the way Tim Keller puts this. Anger is energy aroused in defense of something good and aimed at something evil. Energy is, our anger is energy aroused in defense of something good or that we deem is good, and aimed at something evil, or that we think is evil. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his principle of nonviolence said, we get angry and we get aggressive at attacking problems, not people. Now that's instructive. Paul will go on through the rest of this paragraph and really drill down on this issue of anger. And this is super helpful for us. This is why we read our Bibles the way we do. We bring big principles to particular problems. This is one of the reasons we do Bible study the way we do. We bring big principles to particular little problems. We want to talk about anger. There's three ways to do anger very, very badly, and they're all in this text. We've got to sort of skip ahead a little bit to verse 31. We'll come back to that in a minute. Three ways to do anger very badly. Number one is to bitter up. When you get bitter in your anger, you have gotten energy that was aroused in defense of something that you said was good, but somebody may be in this very room. They're probably upstairs. Maybe they're watching from home for whatever reason. When you get bitter, you give them free rent in your heart, soul, and mind. And you decide that you are going to continue to simmer and, and, and soak in your own misery grease, sometimes as close to them as you can get, so they know just how miserable you are. And that'll show them. I'm going to live a joyless, miserable life just out of earshot from you, and that'll show you. And then you get more and more miserable at the fact that they're not actually living a miserable, joyless life. They're good. Bitterness means you want them to continue to suffer for the thing that they've done to you, but they really don't care, which offends you all the more. And it drives you down into this spiral of resentment. Matthew and Peyton, pay attention. It drives you into this spiral of resentment. When you actually begin to just dislike everything about the other person. That cannot happen in a church. That is called an autoimmune disease when the pieces begin to consume one another. And it's hard to diagnose and it's catastrophic. Get rid of all bitterness. Die to it. You fling it at the cross with ferocity. All bitterness must go. That's one way to get angry the wrong way. When your anger, your energy is aroused in defense of something good and, defend, and attacking something evil. The other way is to blow up. Now, some of us know this 
experience as well. This one's pretty obvious. The switch gets flicked and you just launch. Like Cape Canaveral, we have liftoff. And here it goes. All these words in verse 31 of wrath is, is the, the word orge. It means literally uncontrolled. The reins are off. Anger is the word agron. It just means wild. Tooth and claw. You just blow up. All of the animosity, the thing that you have been determining as good has been violated, and now all of your energy is attacking that which you determine is evil. That's blowing up, and it's destructive. And it cannot, must not happen in a church. It's cataclysmic when that does. It hurts people, and then hurt people hurt people. The third way to be angry the wrong way is to bolt up. You just shut the door, and you clam up, you cave up, you just bolt it. You've been taught, perhaps, for a very long time that anger is bad, it's sin, and so you just stuff it. You just suppress it, just because you don't want to be that person that blows up. And so I think this is probably where most of the saints of God that I encounter are dealing with suppressed, repressed, stuffed anger. In fact, I will contend that a great deal of, not all, but a great deal of what we call depression is really stuffed anger. My energy got aroused the defense of something that I thought was good, and now I'm wanting to attack that which I think is evil, but I'm not gonna, and so I'm just gonna stuff it. Just gonna stuff it. And then three days later, my wife comes around, hypothetically, and goes, what is wrong? I go, I guess I'm just depressed. I guess I'm just depressed. Bolting up is wrong. So what do we do? I'm not pretending that this is easy. It's very hard, but it's absolutely critical. Three ways to be angry wrongly, one way to be angry rightly. See also Jesus. When we see Jesus get angry, what is he doing? He is defending that which is good. His people who are being victimized. If Jesus hadn't gotten angry, then he would not be good. If you see a social ill like that and it doesn't make you angry, then you're not living like Jesus. He was angry. His energy was aroused in defense of what was good. And what was the evil? The system of victimization and objectification. And he got angry and he turned over the, t- the tables of the money changers. Now, that takes some deciding in advance what you're going to do. If you decide in the heat of the moment, you've already lost. Let me just throw this out there hypothetically. Parents. Maybe, maybe you've had the experience, just maybe, where you've blown up at your kids. Maybe. They did a thing. You have to ask yourself, what am I defending? It's actually just the idolatry of my own agenda. The idolatry of my own comfort and ease. And these little image bearers of God that I so deeply love have upset my schedule. So I'm actually defending the idolatry of self and attacking them, which means I'm calling them evil. Does that mean you shouldn't get angry? It does not mean that. You do get angry. You teach them. Hey, listen, we have to have mutual inter-respect here. We have to have a, 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 a sense of civilized societal interaction. You do get angry, but you attack the problem, not the person. Let's ratchet this up a little bit. Let's talk about marriage. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's no marriage problems. We're going to move on. Same principles apply. When you get angry, what are you defending and what are you attacking? By the way, wives, it's not fair for you to ask your husband that this evening. Give it some time, okay? 
Now here's something else that's really fascinating, verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I have heard this misapplied, misused so many times that I now have to quote my good buddy Brent Kirkley who says, listen, listen, if you're fighting, chances are the sun's already gone down. Most people don't fight in the sunlight. Your hormones get out of whack when it's dark and you just start fighting and then someone told you, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And so you think that means you have to stay awake until 2.30 in the morning and yell at each other. But really all you're doing is getting cotton mouthed fighting about how you fight. Stop it, the sun's already down. You've lost that one. Go to bed, but don't go to bed furious. Go to bed, wake up, discuss it calmly in the daylight. You'll be amazed at how transformative that is in your relationship discussions and dialogues. Sun's already gone down. But do not go to bed furious. Why, he says, because you'll give an opportunity, tapas, a foothold, a place for the devil to put his foot. If you go to bed furious, he's going to convince you of all the ways to get angry wrongly. He's going to say blow up, or he's going to say get bitter, or he's going to say bolt up. You say, no, 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 no. Dead, brown, leaves. Let him go. The Spirit's pushing them out and off of me. I am walking in newness of life because that's our big idea. Verse seven, 27, no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is not just about quit your thievery and get to work, be productive. It's not about the Protestant work ethic. It's you and I are not allowed to look at other people and say, that's a thing that I want, that I deserve, that I am entitled to, and I think I'll take it. Most often exercised in areas of sexual immorality. When we begin to look at one another as objects, and you have that thing that I think will make me happy, I think I'll just take it. Whether it's flickering pixels on a screen, or whether it's just interactions with one another, that's thievery. Instead, be productive, build the body, bolster the body, bless the body. Verse 29, oh, you should actually probably just sharpie this one out if you're a pastor at Bethel downtown. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. <laughs> no, that's actually in there. We have to abide by that one as well. My dad, Gene Barton, used to say, what's, up in the well, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. And then he'd say, never miss an opportunity to shut up. It's good advice. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's astonishing. The book of James says don't use the tongue to destroy. It's a nuclear bomb, but use it. Did you know this? You and I are given the grace to give grace. That's amazing. You know who gives grace? God. But with the words that we speak, we can actually give life. We give grace. That's incredible. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, the Holy Spirit of God is not the force. It's not an energy field. He's a person, and he cares, and he cares so much that he indwells us. He sealed us for all eternity, and he's working in and through us in all of our circumstances, all of our surroundings, all of our community members to push out new growth, new fruit, and when we keep stapling dead brown leaves back onto what he's doing, man, it grieves him just like if you were to see your kid in some pattern of behavior that you knew was destructive, that was going to cause long-term damage and dysfunction. It would grieve you. Same with the Holy Spirit. He's, it's not that he's disappointed. Please. No, 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 no. It's, it's more loving than that. It hurts him when we hurt ourselves. 
Let all bitterness, and here's this downward spiral, this bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. This is an interesting word, slander. It's diabolain. It's where you throw, balo, dia, through, diabalo. It's a play on words. It's where you throw through somebody. You, you, you devil somebody. It's not enough that you want their ill. You want everyone else to agree with you that they're bad. That's slander. That cannot happen in a church. That is an autoimmune disease, and it's devastating. Put away from you. Let those brown leaves go, all along with all malice. Oh, here's the alternative. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Forgiving one another, that means paying one another's debts. Everybody loves the idea of forgiveness until they have something to forgive. And then it gets costly. It's what he says in the church. We are to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Walk in newness of life. I'm going to try to apply this stuff as quickly and as efficiently as I can. I want to give just four summary principles. I could do so many more, but this is going to be brief. Four quick summary principles. Number one, our thinking matters to God. Our minds are the scene of the crime. Our thinking matters to God. So much of what we, and I say our mind and our thing, I mean that synonymously with our feelings. So much of what happens in our soul and our spirit, that matters to God. It has spiritual mass. Now, you may hear that and go, wait a minute, you've used that one before, that's cheating. Right, I am and I have. Because it is a refrain through all of Scripture that our thinking matters massively to God. That's why we're to take captive every thought and recognize that we are prone to be the people and the kinds of people who want to staple leaves back on the top of the growth on the tree. Our thinking matters. Why are we doing what we're doing? Our minds matter to God. Very quickly, number two, there is a gravity to our depravity. If what Paul writes here in Ephesians 4 sounds familiar, it's because it's almost identical to Romans 1. We come into this world with a depravity and it just gets heavier and heavier. And if we negotiate with it, if we try to simply get along with it, it gets heavier and heavier. We get pulled down ever increasingly, ever increasingly. There's a pull that corrupts us. And not only that, it removes from us the role that God has called us to participate in. Number three, the virtuous life is the only life that works. That's why we call people to walk in newness of life. All these brown leaves and all the, the mass media messaging that says, do this, you'll be happy. Do this, you'll have joy. Do this, you'll be fulfilled. Doesn't actually work. And we know that, but somehow we get fatigued and apathetic and we enter into this idea that I can make this work. I know better than God. And it's never worked out for a single human being in the history of humankind ever. Fourth, sin is unmanageable. So much of what I hear Christians doing is trying to just be better at trying harder to be better, to just manage their sin. Like, oh, no, I know that's bad. I should stop that. I shouldn't do that anymore. We cannot, must not ever attempt to manage our sin. There's an old Puritan adage. It goes like this. Obedience is hard. Disobedience is impossible. Now, you may hear that and go, no, -uh. pretty easy for me but it leads to an impossible life. Obedience is hard. Disobedience is impossible. We don't compromise. We don't try to merely 
uh, manage our sin. We take the old dead leaves and we allow them to all fall away. And when necessary, we even throw them into the fire. We recognize that Jesus did not become our sin so that we might become the slightly modified sin managers of God. I'm so glad that verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21 does not say that. No, he became our sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. What does that mean? Paul's already told us in Ephesians 4, this righteousness, this holiness, the setting right of the world, and it begins here. Holiness is moving actively to the setting right of the world that has already begun in an individual human heart that is joined together with other members. We're to walk in newness of life. It's hard, no doubt, but it's absolutely worth it. See, all world religions essentially agree with one another. They all say, this is good, this is bad. Do this, don't do this. All world religions buy you a nice shiny toy, but none of them give you the batteries. This is good, this is bad. Try harder to do the good and try harder to not do the bad. Good luck. Every single world religion, save one. And the key is here at the very end of verse 32, as Christ did for you, you and I turn our eyes upon Jesus. We look full in his wonderful face and that gobsmacked affection and attention is what powers new growth and we act according to our new nature ever increasingly, not trying to manage sin, not trying to just be a little bit more moral than that guy. No, we actually live, we walk in the newness of life that is God's plan for us anyway. Read this week, an old Lutheran German scholar named Gerhard Forty. Love to talk about Forty. He says it this way. The Christian must be hidden in the wounds of Christ. Just like Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock. So that when God passes by, we emerge changed. See, this Jesus is the sphere and the subject of our learning and of our teaching. So how would I summarize all this? Well, to walk in newness of life, to let those leaves fall to the ground. Perhaps one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is the parallel to this passage. It's in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. We'll end with this. Paul says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Not a separate nature. Your old manner and motivation of life. Put it off. Let those leaves fall away. That is God's purpose and his plan for your life. To let those leaves fall away. Paul mixes his metaphors here. Make no provision. The word there is safe harbor. Do not create a safe still harbor where sin can dock its ships. Block the harbor. Walk in newness of life. Because he's worth it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to walk in newness of life, to walk through this word. And I pray, God, that you will use it ever increasingly to thicken, deepen, broaden, widen our love, attention, and affection for your son, Jesus, that you, by your spirit indwelling us, would produce new growth and that the old dead leaves would fall away and we would not waste our time trying to scoop them up and reattach them. As we look forward, God, to the day that you will redeem even our physical mortal bodies and that old manner of life, that old motivation for wandering will finally be no more. 
Father, I pray for anyone this morning who is here that does not know you, that is merely trying to manage, merely trying to be a little bit more moral than they were yesterday, that they would understand that there is sin, but there is a Savior, and that they would believe. For the rest of us, Father, would you give us, by the presence of your Spirit, by the surrounding of your people, and the teaching of your Word, would you give us the conviction to walk in newness of life? May it be exactly as I have prayed, or even better. And I pray these things, God, in the power of your Spirit, and in the name of Jesus. Amen.